This is Blue Collar Culture, where you don't need ping pong tables, a cereal bar, or nap pods to attract and retain real A players. Join us for the next hour where we speak with down-to-earth leaders that understand what it takes to win with a blue collar culture. Now here are your hosts, Jeremy McLiver and Ryan England. Welcome back to another episode of the Blue Collar Culture Podcast. I'm your co-host Ryan England, and I'm here with Jeremy McLiver. Good morning. Today we have an incredible guest with us. Brian Burt is an attorney and advises entrepreneurs and emerging growth companies in all stages of development from formation to liquidity. He also represents banks, financial services companies, private investors, and venture capital funds. Brian, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks guys, great to be here. So one of the things I like to do when we first get started is just have you share a little bit of your story with our listeners. You actually used to be an entrepreneur and you, and you then became an attorney. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So started out, uh, went to law school, uh, went back home to my uh, hometown of Pittsburgh, practiced for just a short period of time, and then left in late uh, 1999, uh, getting a little further back now, to uh, start my own internet company uh, back there and spent time going through the entrepreneurial process, raising capital, launching a service, uh, bringing on uh, employees and others, and, and kind of going through that. And so uh, after that wound down, went back into practice, really enjoyed that experience, frankly, probably learned more in those uh, years than I did in three years of law school, uh, just about how things work and, and so forth, and decided I was really interested in kind of living vicariously and helping uh, entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes kind of work through their, not just legal issues, but kind of business issues as well. So over the last you know 20 years or so, have uh, developed a practice that uh, focuses solely on that uh, that type of audience. Wow. So you, you mentioned there's legal issues, there's business issues. And one of the things that we find a lot of times in the people we work with, the people we talk to, is that those issues take on so many different shapes and sizes. What are some of the things that you were seeing real early on in your career that you still see today that are pretty commonplace? Yeah. I mean, we could probably talk for hours here, but the same things that uh, uh, we see every day are the same mistakes people make. Um, and just to give you a few examples, you know, it really comes down to laying a solid uh, legal foundation. There's lots of risks, as we all know, in, in starting and trying to grow a business of any kind. And lots of those risks you can't control. So what we try to do from our end is to help uh, companies and their owners uh, kind of control the things that are within their uh, power. And, you know, setting up your company correctly, uh, bringing on employees and uh, kind of in the hiring process and, and compensating them, complying with the rules, setting up uh, contracts with your, you know, really all third parties, not just internal, but customers and vendors and so forth, kind of getting all those things in place. And uh, one of the biggest ones is really making sure the relationship you have with your partner, uh, whether that's a, a spouse or it's a, a co, uh, co-partner in the business, an investor, uh, you get that foundation really laid carefully because uh, we see lots of companies end up blowing up uh, and not surviving because the partners end up, you know, kind of at each other after times get tough and, and they really haven't worked out the uh, arrangement they'd like to have, they haven't put anything in writing. And so, you know, when, when uh, kind of the, uh, if you hit the fire there, people end up turning on each other and it's, it's not a pretty sight. So again, we see those same mistakes and there's others, but those are kind of the prominent things that encourage, you know, anyone uh, starting a business or even if they've been in business for a few years and haven't really taken the time to look at those issues to, to put in place. 
What are some recommendations? Obviously, when someone's starting out a business, there's they're a risk taker. You said that. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be starting out on it. And sometimes they're more comfortable with the risk than maybe they should be. What are some of the challenges that they should be aware of when they're setting up the LLC, when they're setting up the, the business at the very beginning? Yeah, I think the you know setting up a company, I think people don't recognize, um, as you said, really just don't know the risks are there. So part of what we do is is really just quantify those risks and say, hey, if you if you don't set up the company correctly, what happens? Well, you put your personal assets at risk. So that retirement, that college savings, uh, you know, that house that you uh, struggled so long to to afford, all that becomes at risk if you don't set up the entity properly. Um, and the the kind of irony with a lot of these uh, these basic issues is it doesn't cost a lot to do it right. It doesn't take a lot of energy to do it right, but people just don't know how to do it or they get guidance on the internet or from a buddy. Uh, again, you know, chatting with your friendly neighborhood lawyer maybe isn't the most exciting part of your day. And so they tend to, to just kind of want to do it on their own and not aware that the consequences can be uh, personal. Uh, same if, if people don't uh, in lots of industries you know, get the appropriate licensing or follow certain rules. There can be personal liability. You know, you don't compensate people on an employment side correctly, for example, uh, and something happens, you know, there can be personal liability. Even if you have a company set up properly, uh, sometimes people will go out and get loans to, to start the company and they don't understand the implication of that personal guarantee or don't uh, take steps uh, when they can get out of it to, uh, to make sure that's uh, taken off a loan or paid back. And so, uh, th- those are the types of things, and again, lots of others, but just understanding that just because you have a company doesn't mean the worst case is you bankrupt the entity and you go home and you, you try again. The worst case could be you know, much worse. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard you say before, I actually think it might be a good tagline for you, but it's, it's cheaper to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. That's right. That's right. It's exponentially cheaper to, to do it right on the front end than it is to try to fix it if you can even fix it. Uh, for example, I was on a call just this morning uh, with a client, a uh, super nice guy, and uh, you know had gone in a different direction to put together some documentation with uh, him and his partner a few years back. Uh, that relationship uh, they had went sideways. And let's just say you know he spent probably, I'd say a fair estimate would be maybe 20 times already, and we're not quite done yet, uh, at least 20 times what it would have cost just to get it done right on the front end. So it's just money and time and brain damage that, that didn't need to be incurred, but you know, the decision was made to, to kind of go in a certain direction. And, and those little mistakes uh, and kind of the penny-wise, pound-foolish type approach can really come back to bite you. So encourage folks to invest a little bit of energy up front. It's typically not nearly as expensive as people think to, to do that. Sometimes it may cost a couple hundred bucks, and that may mean the difference between, you know, uh, bearing a lawsuit or some regulatory agency coming after you or putting your personal assets at risk. Uh, you know, that may mean the difference between those things happening and, and you sitting safely in your office, uh, you know, focused on your business. The title of the podcast is Blue Collar Culture. And in that, we really want to address the things that come up inside of the day-to-day of a business, especially when the owner of the company or the leaders may have people in the field, they may have people in a remote office, and they're not there all the time. What are some of the things that you see come up from a legal perspective around employees, around field employees, remote employees? What are the things that our listeners should be aware of? 
Yeah, there's lots of lots of issues that could come up. I mean, one is just keeping track of uh, making sure they're recording their hours, recording their time, um, and and delivering the value. People like to work remotely, uh, particularly the younger generation, and nothing wrong with that. But you need to make sure that the folks are doing what you've hired them to do. That's obviously you know something on the business side, just to figure out how to track that. And there's lots of tools for doing that. Second thing is making sure they're recording their uh, their time from a legal standpoint, because there's all sorts of requirements that no matter what state you're in, to make sure that they're um, they're doing it correctly and you're paying the appropriate compensation and taxes and so forth. Another thing would be, uh, you know, setting a uh, expectation both from a contractual and legal standpoint, as well as from a business culture standpoint, that folks are going to do the right thing. Uh, they're going to make sure that their interactions with customers are consistent with the company's mission consistent with the customer service that the company's promising. Um, and, you know, that's not going to happen unless people get the proper training. So there's certainly legal components to that, knowing what the, you know, the customer contract says and what the warranties say and so forth and, and making sure you honor that. But also from a culture standpoint, um, I always talk to clients and say, hey, just because you can do it uh, based on your contract doesn't mean you should do it. doesn't mean it's good for business. In other words, uh, lots of people put in place uh, agreements that protect the company, which is great. We encourage that. But there's plenty of circumstances where a good business practice would dictate, you know what, we don't have to give you the refund or the credit, but uh, in order to build that relationship and, and kind of end things on a good note or to, to continue the relationship on a good note, you know, we're going to take some extra steps. And, uh, you know, again, kind of investing that into the company and, and having that mindset among the people is uh, – uh, can really pay dividends. I guess the final thing would be to make sure, you know, people understand, particularly in today's uh, culture, that, uh, uh, you know, you've you got to behave appropriately. There can't be a uh, kind of harassment or other type of uh, stuff going on in the workplace, whether internally or, or when you're visiting customers. We see that kind of stuff in the news. It's incredibly uh, damaging to the company and its brand. It's incredibly costly to deal with from a legal standpoint. And so, you know, for for folks listening out there who are um, you know, wanting to understand, hey, what can I do? Uh, because, you know, let's say there's there's some guy in the field and you can't control what everybody does. What you can do is put in place policies and training procedures that can help minimize uh, what happens if, if that rogue employee does his thing. You can't necessarily stop someone from doing something stupid, but you can insulate the company in large part from liability or at least help to minimize it if you've got those um, those policies in place, that training in place. So, those are the three or four things that uh, you know we see over and over. Okay, and every state has its own laws and rules on this stuff, and so I don't want to get into that uh, too much because uh, we don't know where our listeners are at right now. But one of the things that I see happen a lot is people hold on to employees, poor performers, for way too long. Um, they're either afraid to fire them, they're afraid there might be some kind of ramifications if they do, or one of the things that's been in the media a lot the last few years, because we're seeing a lot of larger organizations do it, is they're no longer dismissing people because they're not a fit with the company. They're staying away from that idea, like you're just not a fit, you don't, you don't mesh well with the team, we don't feel like you're a team player. What are some of the tips you would have for our listeners around that when it comes to getting rid of employees, how to do it without getting in trouble? And what do you do when you've hired somebody and they're just not the right fit? Yeah, so it all starts with making sure you properly hire the person on the front end and that you have the appropriate documentation in place, which includes 
you know, maybe an offer letter, it may be an employment agreement. If you've got an executive you bring on, it's going to include an employee handbook. So there's some standard documentation that lots of folks simply just don't do. Uh, again, or they kind of wing it and, and piece things together from uh, stuff borrowed from a friend or, or pulled off the internet. And those documents are, are step one. So it gives you the ability, um, a state like Arizona, for example, I mean, you can hire and fire people at will. Uh, you can't fire them for discriminatory and other similar type reasons, but you can have free, fairly free ability to discharge someone, get rid of someone who's not performing, not a good fit, you know, maybe even disruptive to the company and its culture. Uh, but you've got to put in place the legal framework to be able to let you do that. And then you've got to go through a process at the back end to, you know, document the behavior, document that you're, uh, you know, having conversations and reporting it to the individual um, and kind of working through that, uh, you know, as appropriate. And so what, what people run afoul is that they, you know, they don't have the legal framework on the front uh, part of it. They don't have the paperwork in place, handbook, et cetera. And then, you know, they end up making kind of uh, decisions on the back end that are um, kind of last minute or, or kind of spur the moment there and say, hey, Bob did X, so I've got to go in and, and fire him today. And, you know, probably should have done it a while ago, but I'm going to just kind of manufacture a, a current reason to do it. And it's not going to be a big deal. He should have gotten terminated anyway. So I'm just going to get it over with. And, and what you say uh, or not say in that last conversation, that last meeting can be the difference between buying the company a claim or not. Um, so what we encourage is, you know, develop a relationship, you know, with a, a uh, attorney who the company is going to use. You may not reach out to them very often, but this is one of those times where a, a quick phone call may save you, um, you know, again, lots of uh, uh, brain damage in the company. We had an example not too long ago where, you know, someone did not put a call in and made a, uh, a hiring, or excuse me, firing choice, and it was a it was a $40,000 issue because uh, they ended up, you know, getting rid of someone who probably they should have kept on for a number of reasons, and they could have maybe let go down the road, but they hadn't, you know, followed the process, didn't know some of the rules that existed uh, uh, here in the state to, to uh, facilitate that process, and and just bought themselves a claim, and and again, a quick call would have uh, would have probably saved the day on that one. So you had said at the beginning of that, and I think this goes back to that that tagline that you have, it's easier to stay out of trouble, uh, hire right. Uh, don't make the mistake by bringing on somebody that wasn't going to be a good fit or wouldn't be a poor performer. What are some of the things that employers can do to make sure they're hiring right? Yeah, I mean, you can, and the legal part is 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 pretty easy. I mean, there's there's an ability to obviously ask questions to, to do background checks as appropriate. Uh, so that, that's the easy part. I mean, a more difficult part is that we see people just not spend the time to get to know uh, who they're bringing on the team, sometimes even who they're bringing on as a partner in the company. It's not just the lower level employee, but someone who's going to be a you know minority owner, maybe even a 50% owner, and just don't vet folks, don't do the diligence, don't take the time to, to kind of run them through the process. Um, you know, for example, you know, here at the firm, we, we bring on new recruits. You know, we typically take them through our summer program. You know, we get to spend a whole bunch of weeks with them and, and you get to observe, you know, what they're all about, not just the work product, but kind of the, the fit, which is, you know, a big uh, word these days. Is it really a fit with our particular culture that we try to have here at the firm? And, you know, businesses can't always have a, you know, a, a two month uh, kind of trial period, but what you can do is, set yourself up legally so you have the next best thing and it's kind of a probationary period and it allows you to, to uh, 
make for termination a bit easier if it needs to come to that. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that replaces kind of doing your homework and getting a sense. Is this going to be uh, A, someone who fits with the culture and B, someone who behaves ethically? Because um, that at the end of the day, if they don't you know, kind of bring that to the game, you're going to have issues from from day one. So what are some real practical things they can do? I, I get spending time with them, but are there certain types of questions they should ask? Are there certain things that they should be doing during that process? Well, it's, I don't know that there's, uh, I mean, you can do a background check, so you can obviously get the, um, you know, the uh, the easy to spot flags, if you will. Um, you've got to be careful, um, you know, in terms of, you know, there's questions you can ask and not ask. It's, it's much more limited uh, these days than it used to be. Um, but there's really nothing that, um, uh, you know, kind of replaces doing that diligence, perhaps uh, reaching out to, you know, as, as many references you can get, former employers, et cetera. Again, sometimes they're restricted on what they can say and not say, but just doing your homework as opposed to relying on someone who, you know, threw a resume in and, and uh, looks great on paper, but you didn't take time to really, you know, run them through a few interviews and maybe have them meet uh, more than just one person. There may be a different personality that comes out. And we see this all the time here when we're hiring people, different personality that comes out, different facts that come out when they're meeting with, you know, one person versus another at the same company. And so that, again, taking some time, which as the companies grow, gets more precious. But, uh, you know, having people meet company uh, employees and owners and others at different levels just to get a taste for what, you know, those reactions may be is, is pretty invaluable. Okay. Uh, one of the things that we see with, I think this is just generational, a lot of baby boomers are business owners and they're getting ready, they're starting to think about retiring, exiting the business, what they're going to do for the next step. And I know that that's something that's in your wheelhouse. You're actually quite a bit of an expert in that, being able to sell the company, prepare it for transferring to kids, those kinds of things. And we could dig into a couple of things, but one of the things that I want to really want to focus on is the people side of the business. And if you could speak to a little bit about having people processes, having the right people in place, what's that do as you're getting ready to sell a business? Is it important? Is it not important? Yeah, it's really important. I mean, the one thing that entrepreneurs um, typically like about being entrepreneurs is they're the go-to person in their company, right? They're often the face of the company. And if they're not the face of it, they're certainly the go-to person internally. That's why they typically started the company because they want that type of uh, role with it. And when you go to sell the company, that becomes a problem because if if, the, if you're irreplaceable, what's the buyer buying at the end of the day? If you leave, and sometimes they'll stay on for a little bit of a transition, but once they're gone, you know what's left for the buyer. And if it's if it's uh, you know much less than uh, expected because the company can't function without that one or two individuals at the top, then you're going to end up with a unsuccessful sale. You're going to probably get much less for the company than you hope for. So really, the goal for the owner is to kind of work themselves out of a job, which is uh, you know counterintuitive to why they started it. But you see, the most successful sales be those where the owners, you know, they may still be involved at a high level, maybe they're on the board, they're overseeing things, but they're not in it day to day as much. They've hired folks to do that, and they're still available when needed, but they've really kind of worked themselves out of the job, as I said. And so when a buyer comes in, there's there's no, no one to replace because they've already replaced themselves. So that's one thing. The other thing is putting in place, um, you know, incentive programs and so forth for people who you think are key team members. Uh, we just uh, did a seminar a couple of days ago, and we saw that 43% of the employees are looking to find a new job in 2020. So when owners transition, particularly if they've been 
owners for a long time, employees may head for the door saying, hey, I love to work with Bob, but not that excited about working for uh, this big new company that's coming in. And so putting in place uh, incentive programs, both during the tenure of the company to keep them happy and keep them motivated and energized, as well as to transition to the next owner, uh, is something that's going to pay some dividends. And you can't do that uh, right before a sale happens because folks get a little a little suspicious of the of the intent. They're not going to not take the money, of course, but um, if it's a part of the culture throughout the um, you know the life cycle of the company, it's it's much more impactful and shows that hey, we you know we do uh, do care about these folks and we want to see them do well and and kind of uh, uh, continue on in, in kind of phase two here. Um, but the the other than that, I think the uh, making sure that you're um, you know, you're, you're uh, tying down all the issues with folks who are promised to get something along the way, uh, thinking particularly about folks who are promised to get a piece of the equity or uh, some kind of other incentive when the company sells. There's lots of promises made and lots of people work toward that goal. And you see lots of startup companies or even more mature companies never put it in writing. And so when the company ends up getting sold or transitioned, Lots of those things become battles because they they just didn't make their way to paper. And so having that documented, again, is going to create a much more um, enthusiastic uh, group of folks who are willing to help you push through the sale and, and get your your payday, but also uh, much more likely to stick with the uh, the new owner, you know, at least for a period of time to get through that transition. I see that quite often that the owners, you know, when they're in the trenches, they're building the business, times are tough. Uh, they had those few key guys or uh, ladies that are really helping pull for it. And sometimes in those moments uh, of gratitude and thankfulness, they say stuff um, as leaders that could be misinterpreted as I'm giving you a portion of this business or there's sweat equity or you're, you know, something like that. I definitely have seen that get to the end and have a pretty dramatic buildup because that person felt like, hey, I was working and we were a part of this and now now you're selling it and I don't get nothing. So definitely like that and appreciate those comments because it's a real trap that a lot of leaders find themselves in and didn't realize that they were actually in it. No, I think that's right. And uh, we've seen some clients who've been you know, more generous than they had to be, at least from a legal standpoint, step up and write checks and had no obligation to do so. But to your point, it's better just to, you know, put in place programs and incentives at, at all levels. I mean, some are going to be more generous than others. Some may take different forms, but, you know, getting on paper, people know what to expect. I mean, that's really the best way to to get everyone to row in the same direction. And when a sale comes, it's going to be traumatic for lots of people. They're not sure whether they're going to have a job. They're not happy about their leader, assuming they like that person leaving, um, and really just kind of unsure what's going to what's going to take place after the deal closes. And so at least they know, you know, they've got a uh, a reward at the end of the, uh, the process there it gives them, you know, some motivation again to get, get everyone through the thing and, and hopefully, you know, st- stick around and help the buyer uh, for the next phase. Yeah. So you mentioned some things about getting ready to sell. What do you recommend is a good time frame to start thinking about the moves you need to make before you want to get out of the business? Well, yesterday is really the time. So we you know, do a lot of these programs and, and talk to clients about these issues. And the one thing that probably is most tragic, uh, at least from my perspective, are people who never 
think about how they're going to get out of the business until it's too late. So we always encourage people when you're starting the business, uh, think equally about how you're going to get out of the business. And that might mean a sale. It might mean a transition to a family member. Um, it could mean just shutting down the company, which is obviously not the most lucrative approach, but that sometimes happens. You kind of run its course. Uh, so there's a number of ways to, to kind of think about it, but people never put energy into it. Uh, they're focused on obviously growing the company, generating revenue, the fun stuff, and don't want to think about the end. And so they don't do a couple of things. One, they don't know uh, and understand what the value uh, metrics are. So at the end of the day, most people are building the company to, to have fun and enjoy it and, and make, some, make some money along the way, but they're also trying to uh, maybe pre prepare for retirement. That may be for lots of business owners, their nest egg, their retirement uh, plan. Uh, I've got most of my net worth uh, tied up in the business, and when I retire at whatever age, I'm going to sell it, and that's going to be the uh, you know what we live off of. And in order to do that, you need to understand what the company ultimately is going to be worth and what it would sell for. Usually, companies sell for a multiple of earnings, of profits. And each company, though, is a little different depending on industry, depending on size, uh, and so forth, sometimes even geography. And so people kind of assume that what their buddy got for their tech company that maybe sold for you know seven times uh, profits is what they're going to get. And they find out uh, sometimes too late. We've seen companies who've been around for 20 or 30 years. Owners plan on a certain exit multiple, as we call it only to find out that instead of seven times, maybe theirs is two times. And so they've been working literally for uh, you know, a few decades toward the purchase price and planning retirement, only to find out at sale they're not going to get what they thought, and they have to go right back to work. Uh, and that's a pretty tragic result when they're in their 60s and you know, think that this is going to be a, a big exit and uh, turns out not to be the case, simply because they didn't have the information they could have probably had you know, decades earlier, but just never, never found it out. So that's one thing. Second thing is just planning for that inevitable event and, and kind of talk about being for sale every day, kind of thinking that, hey, today could be the day, and, and that might happen because someone gets sick. Uh, you know, maybe the owner gets sick and there's some kind of tragedy. Maybe they get killed in a, in a you know, plane crash. Maybe uh, there's some development in the industry, a new competitor, some regulatory change where they see the trend uh, kind of uh, going on the, on, the, on the downswing much quicker than they thought. And so they need to move up the exit date. And so because you don't know what's going to happen, you want to kind of assume your company's for sale every day. And what's that mean? Well, it means doing all the things we've talked about so far in terms of putting in place the proper legal foundation, the procedures, making sure the company's culture is what you think it should be. Um, and all these things are going to add up to a, uh, a much stronger company, and that's going to translate into a much more um, attractive sale price at the end. No buyer likes to come in and see that there are 25 uh, kind of loose ends they need to tie up, or there's some litigation, or there's other issues. There's people complaining they didn't get their equity. There's people who've been, you know, fired inappropriately, and now they're making some claims with the, uh, you know, various regulatory agencies. All these things uh, tend to add up, and, and really, um, if buyers even remain interested, kind of makes the process more expensive makes the sale price lower, and you can avoid you know, lots of that by simply keeping a clean company and doing these things, if, if not on the very front, taking some time today, even if you've been in business for 10 years, say, hey, let's, let's take stock of where we're at. Let's kind of go through a, a legal audit process. Let's figure out what we need to clean up. 
And let's do that well in advance of when we need to sell, uh, because some of these things take years to implement. You can't just go in and in two weeks fix all the issues. It may take, you know, a couple of years to clean things up, to do some tax planning, to put some systems in place, to to make some incentive programs actually, uh, you know, be worthwhile to those you're giving the uh, uh, giving them out to the employees you're you're giving them out to. So. The things that you know they need to do take time to implement and, and realize their potential, and so that's why, again, treating it like it's for sale every day is going to you know make it a lot more uh, valuable when that time does come. Yeah, sometimes I, uh, you know, this is what we do all day long, right? And sometimes I'll get some pushback from somebody like, "Well, I don't plan on ever selling this. I want to hand this off to my kids. I want to, you know, whatever that may be. They have some form of." generational type goals. Sometimes you get to the end of that and realize your kids don't even want it. One of the things I'm always encouraging people to do is to build it to sell. And when you get to that point, you might just want to be the buyer. Like if it's running without you and you're enjoying it and it's a great asset, be the buyer yourself. Now you own something that's worth selling. And speaking of buying, I I did have a question that I wanted to jump into. And that was, uh, Looking at this business transaction from the buying side, I was recently talking to a guy that uh, bought a business. He's struggling with it now. And it really comes down to the fact that he had an entire different value system than the previous buyer. And so now they're having tons of employee turnover. They're having uh, lots of customer turnover, customers falling out that have been with the uh, clients of the company for years. So when you're looking in at the company to buy, do you have some recommendations for how they can recognize if they're the right fit, they're the right buyer for it? No, that's a great question. And uh, I've actually got a friend and client of mine who who actually does this for a business. And she goes in and analyzes the culture of both companies, not the legal stuff, not even necessarily the, the kind of the business metrics, but really the culture to see if there's a fit. There's a statistic, and it's a very high number. Uh, and I've seen it repeatedly throughout my career that says that most uh, acquisitions fail. Uh, and for the reasons you know, you've know you alluded to there, they did not have a meeting of the cultures. And so, you know, one clashes with the other and people leave. Um, you know, there's some examples even here in town where, you know, two well-known companies get together and, and folks say, hey, I went into the office uh, six months after they did the deal and I could tell exactly who was from which company because they act differently. Sometimes maybe they dress differently. There's different approaches to doing uh, doing their jobs. And so uh, having that uh, analysis done on the front end, and there's, again, there's there's folks out there who do this for a living, is really an underutilized uh, part of the process. Everyone wants to check the financials. You know, they want to check the legal stuff. They want to, you know, get together and, and figure out whether those projections that the seller is making are, are legitimate and they're going to be able to meet those numbers, but they really take very little time to go in and say, hey, is this a fit? And, and you know, for example, here at the firm, when we, when we grow, we do it very organically and we've passed up a lot of opportunities to bring uh, other firms on or merge with other firms who just don't fit the culture. Uh, there may have been some economic benefit, but it's not a cultural fit. And so we really uh, one of the reasons I love being here, we really wait until uh, we find that match and, uh, you know, take a lot of candidates into consideration before we think it's a right fit and, and do it very slowly, very methodically. Uh, most companies, when they're buying others, don't, don't do it. And what we see is the kind of the carnage on the back end when 
you know, the buyer's unhappy, uh, you know, the seller, uh, most of their employees they, they work with for years have, have fled and, you know, walked out the door. Uh, and sometimes the best uh, indicator is what happens to the uh, old owner. Uh, they might bring them on, you know, for a three-year period under an employment agreement. And oftentimes, I don't think I have uh, too many exceptions to the rule I can even think of, but that person lasts three months or six months. Um, and we've seen people literally leave millions of dollars on the table, um, you know, just in the last 24, 36 months where they sold their company. They had a very lucrative uh, uh, post-closing employment agreement, but they just couldn't match with the culture that the buyer brought in. And so they they left and the buyer lost a key asset in terms of what it acquired. So long story short, that cultural analysis uh, can be done and there's experts who do it. And it's a really good way to figure out whether you're going to buy a company that's going to be a, a match, not just with your financial goals, but the cultural uh, you know, things that you're importing. And if so, your deal is going to be a lot more successful. I definitely, I see it a lot as as companies look at this and one of the, the one of the issues that they have is it's very rare that a company has a very defined culture they know what it is they're intentional about it they've been driving for it um and then they have a way of communicating it i've heard you mention several times here that uh your culture and your your guys's firm's culture how would you describe your firm's culture well it's it's a uh you know everyone kind of pitches it in the same way. I've been in a number of law firms, and so uh, I've seen everyone kind of have the same tagline, but few actually follow it. And we we kind of ascribe to a no-jerk no policy, and we've actually made the paper a few times uh, because it, we, you know, it's it's kind of our short-form way to describe what we uh, promote here. And uh, it, it's really true. I mean, you, you come here and you see that pretty quickly. People are collegial. We set up a compensation system to uh, promote that type of approach. And it really encourages folks to work with each other, to bring in clients, work on projects. And we just don't tolerate even, you know, if they may be productive from a uh, financial standpoint, just really don't tolerate folks who don't treat others well, not just the fellow attorneys, but the staff and, and others who, who work here. And that's that's a huge difference. And we also bring people in, which is unique uh, to, to our firm and not too many other firms kind of have this approach. We bring people in on the front end. Uh, from the attorney level with the expectation that, hey, we're going to hire you with the assumption that you can make partners someday. You can you know, grow your practice. You can be here for a lifetime if you want. And we're not bringing on people to say, hey, we, we know that we can really uh, you know, take three through the system, but we'll bring on 10 and we'll weed seven out. It's not kind of this, uh, you know, this competition that uh, it requires us to weed people out who you know, otherwise might be good uh, good folks. We bring on everyone with the assumption that, you know, it's kind of yours to lose. We're going to give you the resources. We're going to give you the training, the mentorship, and we have programs in place for all these things, you know, organized uh, processes, as we talked about earlier, uh, very organized processes to, to make sure that people are taken care of uh, along each of the steps. And you know, we have mental relationships. And so it really, um, you know, some people will decide, hey, it's not for them. So they go in-house or do other things. But for those who decide it is for them, uh, each one of them can uh, grow and, and you know take care of those, uh, uh, get the resources and, and you know, evolve their career. So it's it's a pretty unique culture. I've been here for um, 16 years now and and would never leave because of that. Uh, you know, lots of places you can practice, but not too many places where you get that kind of a uh, that kind of a culture. We've been around for over 80 years here in Phoenix as 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 a result of that, and people 
know when you come here, hey, that's that's what you're getting. Find that quite often that people feel like values are the soft, fluffy something that's not important. We got real stuff to do and real results. But uh, I love hearing how you're talking about the longevity because I see when companies really focus in on their values that they they start attracting a lot better candidates to the table, and then the people that are there once they finally make it their home, they're like, I'm never leaving. Just like you just said there, all, all compensation can maybe be better somewhere else, but uh, this is home. I like it. I'm, I'm happy here. I value the same things. I find that the long-term reward on values is very easy to recognize. And you mentioned something that really piqued my interest, and that was you, that the firm has a compensation model that's based around your guys's uh, culture. And I love that because that's really putting, for lack of better words, your money where your mouth is on this deal. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, there's two different ways we, we compensate people. I mean, one is at the associate level and then there's one at the partner level. And at the partner level, uh, we have a pretty unique system. It was actually uh, in the legal press uh, many years ago because it was uh, you know pretty unique uh, in the country. And uh, it basically... You know, you've got a small group of, of managers at the top who uh, people elect, and partners elect, and put them into those slots, and uh, you know, entrust them with the um, authority to determine compensation for the partnership. And we have a couple hundred partners, and uh, in that process, not only do they do that, but we don't have any idea what uh, other partners make. So it's a closed compensation system, is what we call it. And, uh, you know, there's there's firms that have variations on that, but lots of firms have the complete opposite. And everyone knows what everybody makes. And it really, uh, and I've seen it because I was in a firm where that was the case. And it creates a lot of uh, uh, contentiousness because people, why did this person make, you know, X amount more? And kind of constantly comparing yourself here, you know, people either believe they've been treated fairly, which, you know, 99% of them do. Uh, if you don't, obviously, you always have all their alternatives. But you know, people can focus on working together to bring in a new client. You're not fighting about who's getting the credit necessarily. You're not fighting about, well, you know, what do I get to uh, help you work on your project? I'm in a corporate group. You're an IP guy. Uh, why would I want to help you? You know, what do, what do I get out of it? And, and you see that lots of firms where before people even go on a pitch, they're fighting about the credit. And here it's it's the complete opposite. You know, whether you're a uh, you know, an associate who brings in a partner to help you land a client or work on a deal or, or vice versa. There's that uh, uh, culture where we kind of all help each other out. You know, sometimes we're the one making the request. Sometimes we're getting the request. But we know at the end of the day, the folks who are kind of making those decisions are observing. You know, we let them know what we've been doing during the year and they compensate accordingly for what you've contributed on an aggregate basis. And it's not just based on uh, quantitative data, it's um, also based on that more subjective uh, contribution. And so that makes for a culture that's pretty unique. And you're not, uh, again, kind of fighting tooth and nail with uh, each other. You're saving those, uh, you know, those things for uh, what you're doing in the courtroom or your negotiation on the other side of the deal. I mean, you know, have that kind of interaction when it's appropriate, but don't, don't do it internally. Uh, you know, work together to to make uh, you know for a good client relationship, good work product, good result for the uh, you know people you're working with. So it's it's a pretty unique thing, and it's what um, uh, you know people coming in sometimes you know don't understand how it's going to play out. Uh, once they do get into it, they become pretty good fans, and 
to your point earlier, uh, having a culture that everyone knows what it is uh, helps self-select out people who wouldn't be a good fit. There's people who just will never apply to come here. Uh, similar to any company that really tells you what it's all about, they say, hey, that's not something I'm interested in. So they never show up for an interview. And that really saves uh, kind of a lot of uh, time and effort along the way because you're not having to weed out as many people who you know, get into the mix, get hired, and six months later say, ah, this is just not for me. A lot of those folks just never, you know, bother to interview. And that, again, I think helps promote and maintain that culture uh, as well. I love it when somebody, when you communicate your vision to somebody and then they don't follow through with uh, the rest of the application process. I feel like Absolutely. that's a huge win. Absolutely. So, so, Brian, I've heard you bring it up a few times. Uh, and I think it's great because I absolutely agree that the culture inside of your organization actually could be one of your greatest assets. And I think a lot of times business owners get caught up on chasing the next client, chasing the next deal, and they forget to look internally and say, hey, we could really create the company we want if we just focused on the right people for our team. And so with that, I want to ask you for all of our listeners out there, whether they're entrepreneurs or business leaders, what's the number one piece of advice you want them to have before we wrap up today's session? Well, I mean, I think you just said it. I mean, it's really at the beginning of your you know, entrepreneurial journey, or if you're already on the journey, uh, I've certainly seen companies do this and work with companies who have done this, is, is kind of just pa push pause and reevaluate and say, hey, what do we want to be over the next five or 10 or 20 years? Uh, do we even have a culture? Do we even have something that we stand for apart from selling widgets? And if you don't, um, or again, if you're just getting started, figure out what that's going to be. Um, because everything flows from that. If the goal is you know, get in business, make a bunch of money, um, and that's the end uh, objective, uh, you may or may not do that, but you're probably not going to have a whole lot of fun along the way, and you're certainly not going to attract people who want to be there for more than the paycheck, and those people are going to you know, run to the next opportunity. That's part of the 42 or 43%. They're going to you know, look for another job and, and jump when the best uh, next best thing comes along. So really thinking through that, and then starting to bring on people, beginning with your, you know, your partners, your investors, your others who are going to be kind of your key players, and kind of percolating down to the, you know, to the frontline folks, uh, bringing people on who share the value, and holding out for uh, people who, um, you know, fit that bill. Um, even when you're in growth mode, it's easy to try to bring on people, and uh, you know, we've seen that happen in lots of circumstances where they just throw those those guidelines to the side and say, hey, we're 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 hitting a, a growth spurt here. We can't focus on or worry about these these soft things as you called them, these these cultural things. Let's just bring on bodies. And eventually you have to get rid of lots of those people because they don't work out and they never really understood why they were there in the first place. So kind of coming up with that, uh, first getting the people who run and own the company to agree on that and buy into that. Um, and that typically takes the form of written documentation, both from a legal standpoint, but just from a mission statement. And then we've got one here at the firm. And then you, um, from there, you kind of build the, the processes, the legal paperwork, everything kind of flows through that to um, continue to maintain it. You know, you're going to bring people on in that fashion. You're going to let them go if they fail to meet that, uh, uh, those benchmarks and that, uh, that perspective, if they fail to, to, to live up to that, even if it means getting rid of uh, what might be otherwise financially uh, uh, productive folks of the team, uh, if they're not advancing the culture, that may be a tough choice and probably the toughest choice. But in order to to keep things going the way you you want them to, you got to make those tough decisions. And that, again, if you don't set that up from the beginning, 
going to be difficult to uh, to kind of implement along the way. It's going to end up being piecemeal, and and you're going to have a bunch of people who really don't know what the company stands for, other than you know selling those widgets. Well, and when you've got people on your team that align with your value system and they're aligned with the vision, it's just a lot more fun too. Uh, it helps get through some of those ups and downs in business when you're all moving in the same direction and you're having fun while you do it. So, Brian, hey, I want to thank you for being on today's podcast episode. Um, how do people get a hold of you if they want to know more about what you do? Sure. Uh, best way is probably uh, their phone or email. Uh, email is uh, bbert, that's B-B-U-R-T, at S-W-L-A-W.com. So bbert at SWLaw.com. Or you can reach me by phone at 602-382-6317. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for being here again. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. Really enjoyed it today. And uh, for all of you listeners out there, if there's anything that resonated with you around culture or even just getting some of the legal stuff taken care of in your business, because I know a lot of times it's really easy to overlook that. Brian is a wealth of knowledge, and I know that he'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. Thanks again, Brian. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. The Blue Collar Culture Podcast is sponsored by bluecollarculture.com. We help entrepreneurs create a healthy culture and build a self-managing business. To learn more, go to bluecollarculture.com.